Good morning. Please stand for the reading of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So it's, uh, it's pretty amazing to me how two things that can be comprised of the same general ingredients can produce radically different experiences. Uh, Lindsay and I, we got married uh, like eight years ago, seven and a half years ago, and we got married in Long Island City, and uh, Lindsay had just started a new job, so she wasn't really able to take vacation time yet, so we weren't able to do like a full-fledged honeymoon. We just decided to take a couple days and stay downtown in the city, pretend we were tourists, uh, uh, bum around for a couple of days. And so uh, in all of our wedding gear, we hailed a cab from Long Island City downtown. We got to the hotel, and we're there at the, the front desk, and uh, I, I realized that I left my wallet at the, the wedding venue, uh, and earlier that day, Lindsay put her credit card in my wallet. So we're at the, the counter, and we have zero credit cards. Uh, so we have a couple of options. We can either uh, call one of our friends and family members and have them meet us at the hotel where we're spending our wedding night, uh, which didn't sound awesome to me, or we could open the suitcase full of cards that we have and rifle through to see if we have enough cash to pay for our hotel. Uh, we chose option B. So here we are, and we're like opening, we're at like the front desk, opening our, our wedding cards, like rifling through. It's like check, 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 cash, check, 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 cash, check, 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 cash. I don't know if you've ever paid cash for like a, a nice hotel, but you have to not only pay for, you have to pay all of the nights in advance, and on top of that, you have to put down a cash deposit in case you trash the hotel room. So we needed quite a bit of cash. So we're like cash, cash, cash. And we, we fortunately had enough, we scrounged together enough to pay for our hotel uh, and had, enough left over to bum around the city the next couple of days and do some fun stuff. And so the next day we decided that we were going to take some of our suitcase full of cash and go and have a nice meal, like go to a nice restaurant. So we do some Yelp reviews and stuff like that. And uh, we, uh, we found this restaurant called Craft. This is uh, Tom Colicchio's flagship. Uh, some of you might have been there before. Uh, so uh, 
this wasn't the first time we ate food in our lives. Obviously, we've eaten food before, but it was definitely the first time we ate food at this price point, uh, like by a long shot. Uh, this is the kind of place you go if you have a suitcase full of cash, which we did. It was perfect. But like up until that point, like my idea of craft was craft macaroni and cheese, which is which is. Great, don't get me wrong, I, like, I love Kraft macaroni and cheese, but, but this was on just like a completely different level. You would have thought we'd never eaten food before, because with each bite, we're just like, oh my goodness. We're like, this is what food was supposed to be. Like, we felt like we were gypped, like the, our whole lives. We're like, this is what food was supposed to be? What have we been slumming it with this garbage this whole time? Like, this is food, and, and it's hard to even like go back after that. But what, what's crazy is, it, it's just American fare. It's not like fancy, crazy dishes. They're just kind of normal dishes with the same general ingredients. They're just the ingredients of a, a, a better quality, and they're used in a better way and they produce a radically different result. And, and I think the same can be said of the Christian life, that there are certain ingredients to the Christian life, general ingredients that, to be a Christian, like these need to be part of your life. Uh, and, and for so many of us, we're, we're content with a sort of like craft macaroni and cheese level of life because we have these ingredients, but there, there are some people, and you know these people, you see them, and they, they're just experiencing life in a different way. They have the same ingredients, but the quality of those ingredients and the way that they're being used produces this superlative experience of life. And a superlative experience specifically of the Christian life. Uh, as I was entering into this week, knowing that I was going to preach, there was a, a topic and a text that I had in mind. And then on Sunday morning, uh, or sorry, on Monday morning, I sat down and I started, as did many of you, the 21, 2021 scripture reading plan. And as part of that, we read 1 Thessalonians 1. And as I was reading through this chapter, I was just invigorated. Here was Paul, and he was talking about the, the church in Thessalonica. And as he was describing them and observing, he was observing these, these elements in them. And they're kind of like the normal elements of Christian life, but they were of a, a quality and a caliber that brought him so much joy, even just talking about them. I was like feeling that joy, and I was just thinking to myself, this is what I want. Like, this is what I want for me, for 2021. This is what I, I want for you. This is what I think you want for you, right? These, these ingredients, they're normal ingredients, but they're at a, a caliber and a quality that is so rich, and it gives an experience of the Christian life that it, it's just, it feels like every other moment you're being gypped. <laughs> Right? And I know for many of you, you've had these experiences. You've gone through seasons where you're like, this is living. Like, this is the Christian life. This is what it's supposed to be like. And perhaps for you, you've been there and you're not there and you kind of miss it and you want to get back there. For the others of you, you've kind of heard of other people. Maybe you haven't experienced it yourself, but you've heard of this and you're like, I haven't really experienced that. For me, the Christian life is kind of, it's fine. Like, it's Kraft macaroni and cheese. But, but maybe I'm open to something better. For others of you, you're like, you know, I'm fine with Kraft macaroni and cheese. That's where you're at. That's awesome. But I think for so many of us, we want more. We want the richest. We want the best out of the Christian life. And in this chapter uh, in 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul observes for us these ingredients to the Christian life and, and the quality that they were being expressed with in Thessalonica. But he also talks about the soil in which they are developed and how to cultivate that soil. And this, this passage is so rich that actually the reformer John Calvin, he said that 1 Thessalonians 1, he described it as a brief de definition of Christianity. Like this is Christianity as it, it's meant to be. And I think there's so much for us to unpack in this chapter. But what you're going to notice is the ingredients. There's these three ingredients he talks about and they're normal. 
They aren't going to like just surprise you. We see in uh, chapter or verse three of this passage, he says, "Remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope." in our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you surprised that the three ingredients are faith, hope, and love? Probably not. Uh, these are the kind of core ingredients of the Christian life. But he says something about these right away, right? He doesn't just talk about faith, love, and hope. He says, we remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, right? He says, your labor prompted by love and your endurance inspired by the hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, right? So it, it's not just faith, hope, and love, but it's, it's a faith that works. It's a love that labors, and it's a hope that endures. And if we, we go a little further in the text, he starts to build on these even more, and he talks about how when the gospel came to them, they came not just with words, but with power, right, and with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. So he adds to those first three ingredients power and the Spirit and deep conviction. And he goes on toward the end of the chapter, and he says that they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us, right? And he adds this, this third layer to those attributes, right? To turn from God, to serve uh, God, and to wait for Jesus. And you can kind of look at these horizontally, but as you, you look at them vertically, you start to see these three ingredients of the Christian life and how they were being expressed by the Thessalonians, right? The quality of them and the richness of them that produced a, uh, a superlative Christian experience. And I want to take them one at a time, all right? So here we have the first one, faith that works with power to turn from idols, right? Faith in uh, the biblical sense, faith is active. It's inherently active. It's not simply just agreeing with a set of statements. Faith, Christian faith, is active. It's about doing something. You guys might remember uh, James, the brother of Jesus, he famous, famously wrote that faith without works is dead, right? It's nothing. Faith, in the biblical sense, it's active. It, it works, right? And it works with power to do something specific, to turn from idols, he says, to turn to God from idols. Now, when you hear about idols, I don't know if, uh, if for you, maybe you think of like little statues that people are bowing to. Uh, and that was certainly part of idolatry in ancient, the ancient Greco-Roman world. But that's, uh, that, that's kind of like the simplified version. It actually goes much deeper than that. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, they didn't just have like 10 or 12 gods that they would kind of worship. They actually had an infinite number of gods and it was like growing by the second. Uh, basically, they, they took every aspect of the human experience, of human life, and that aspect would be deified and there would be a, a god like assigned to that aspect of, of human life, of human experience. And they would do whatever they could to appease that god. They would worship, they would make sacrifices in order to get from that god whatever that human experience they were looking for. Right? And so if you think about it in that sense, it's not that they worship the gods themselves. They actually worship these, these experiences or these attributes. And so, uh, you know, in the, the ancient world, somebody might offer a sacrifice to Venus because she was the god, goddess of fertility. Right? And, and today, you wouldn't expect somebody to offer a sacrifice to Venus, but you would ex expect somebody in our uh, everyday life to worship their children, right? It might not look the same. They aren't going to offer, uh, you know, sacrifices at a temple or, you know, do these things to appease the gods, but they will organize their lives in such a way 
to uh, prioritize their, their kids. They will organize their schedules and their values and their affections in a way to, to demonstrate that what is supreme in their life is their, their children, right? This is idolatry as is seen in the 21st century. And what we see in Thessalonica is that they had this faith in Jesus that was working. It was active and it was working to turn from idols. And as it was working, it was met with this divine power that actually enabled them to do this. Uh, I had asked MJ to come and do the scripture reading this morning because uh, MJ, I think, is somebody who has exemplified this in the last year. Uh, about a year ago, I met with MJ because she was interested in uh, kind of moving into deeper levels of service in the church community. And, and she had some concerns because there are things that Beacon believes and things that the Bible teaches that she wasn't really comfortable with. And she didn't know if she agreed with these things. And, and she wanted to be open and honest and candid about it. And, uh, and so we sat and we talked. And, and that's kind of where she was at. But she didn't, she didn't just kind of stay there. She went home that day and she put her faith to work. And she reflected on these things. And she prayed over these things. And she read scripture about these things. And, and over time, something happened. She was met with this divine power. <laughs> And, and she began to realize that the issue wasn't just that maybe she disagreed. That was the, the surface. What she realized is that deeper down, there was this idolatry. That for her, and this is, I think, a super common idol in our culture today. For her, she trusted and relied on her feelings and her intuitions and her own understanding above the authority of God's word. So for her, the, the arbiter of truth was her own intuition and understanding. And when her own intuition and understanding came up against what the Bible taught, she, she was in those moments trusting and relying on her own intuition and understanding. And this started to become revealed to her by the power of God working in her life as her faith was put to work. And she found this divine power, this ability to actually turn from that idol. And a few months later, we got together again. She's, I, I don't even know how to explain it, she says. Like, I don't know what happened. I do. It, there's this power, but she's, I don't, I, she called herself the most obstinate of people, but she found this power to actually to turn from that idol that was so ingrained, that was so much a part of her life, and to turn and trust in the living God, rather than relying on her own understanding, to rely on the authority of God, even in the things, especially in the things that she doesn't understand. She'll be the first to admit, she doesn't understand all these things, but she doesn't have to, because she's not trusting in her own understanding. She turned from that idol, and she's relying on the living God. See, this is how faith works in our lives. It starts to uproot these idols, these things that are so natural to us, so natural to our society, but it works in us and it transforms us. And as it does, there's this power to do what we never thought would be possible. Is faith working itself out in your life in this way? Is there transformation happening? Do you see idols being demolished, strongholds being just completely eliminated from your life by the power of God? Is this something you want for your life? This is one of the, the key ingredients that led to that, that fullness of life for the Thessalonians. The second ingredient is a love that labors with the Holy Spirit to serve God. Right, a love that labors. We, we all know that love, like faith, is not simply a sentiment. Love is a, a verb, right? Love is an action. Uh, as extreme would say, it requires more than words, right? Love, it, it costs us something. We have to do something with it. But Paul doesn't just say that their love was working, like their faith. He uses this word labor, right? 
Labor goes even farther than just simply being productive. Labor, it, it, it expresses this sort of exertion, right? Uh, one commentator talking about this word used here, he says, labor signifies either the fatiguing nature of what is done or the magnitude of the exertion required. You get that? So their love was laboring. Like, it was fatiguing them, their, themselves as they were exhibiting this love. It was, they were exerting this great magnitude of energy into the lives of other people. A love that labors. Now, you, you can kind of think about this, all right? If a love that is laboring like that, it's, a, it's exerting itself, it's fatiguing itself, it's going to run out pretty quickly, which is why, of course, it's not love that labors by itself. It's love that labors with the Holy Spirit. Right, he talks about how their love is laboring, but the Holy Spirit is coming in, this, this fresh stream of living water to refresh them so they can keep laboring and love, keep exerting themselves for other people. And, and then he adds that it's to serve God. Right? And this is critical. A love that labors, that, that allows its resources to be depleted for other people has to be in service to God or it's going to stop pretty quickly. And, and here's why. Uh, People, you know people, people don't deserve this love, <laughs> right? Like people, they're, uh, even if you think they deserve it, like give them a, like a couple of weeks and you're going to realize, oh, no, no, you don't deserve this love from me. You don't deserve for me to like deplete. You don't deserve this sort of labor, right? Uh, and, and parents, you, you get the, the amount of labor that goes into love uh, because, of course, kids are work. Uh, and they deplete your resources, and they drain you. But you keep doing it because you, you love them and all, all of that. Uh, now, you don't have to be a parent to know how love labors, right? Anybody can labor and love. It's just that most of us, if we, if we were in a relationship with somebody, and that person was as much work as our kids, we wouldn't keep loving them. We just walk away from that relationship. You can't do that with your kids. Uh, you, like, have to keep loving them. But <laughs> the Thessalonians, they were, they were exhibiting that sort of labor of love for each other, for the people around them, for the people that didn't deserve it, even for their enemies, right? And, and not, not just for them. They were doing it in service to God because you realize people might not be the objects of your love, the people that you're loving, they might not be worthy of that sort of selfless love, that unreciprocated love. But God is. He is infinitely worthy. And if we're doing it for him, then we're never going to run out of, of that motivation, right? We're never going to say, oh, you're no longer worth my love because we weren't doing it for them. We were doing it for God. And he is worth that love, that love that will keep depleting its resources even when it's receiving nothing in return. Many of you know Jocelyn, uh, Jocelyn Ayende. You, you probably, uh, if you're here in the room, you at least saw her face as you, uh, you were coming in. She's one of the, the greeters on our First Impressions team. She's also the administrator of the Pastoral Leadership Incubator. Uh, she's also the parish leader for Mineola. Um, she also works full-time, uh, and she has a couple of kids as well. Uh, and I have the singular privilege of being her neighbor, which is super cool. Uh, and so I've known Jocelyn for a few years, uh, for a number of years, but I, I've been her neighbor for two years, and I get to see the way that she loves people. I get to see the way that she loves people here in the Beacon community. As a parish leader, I get to see the way that she loves the, the people outside of Beacon in our, our community. Like I see her doing late night runs to the grocery store just so hungry people in Mineola don't go hungry that night, or gathering clothes so that 
people aren't cold in the wintertime. And, and I, I get to see how she loves her own children and the way she labors in love for her own boys. I get to see how she labors in love for my daughter because, like, my wife and I will routinely just show up with our daughter and drop her off and, like, bye. Uh, and she will just gladly watch our daughter. And she is eager to serve. And she loves my daughter. And she feeds my daughter. And, and one of the coolest things that I've gotten to see is the way that she loves her husband. Now, uh, Ben is a, a dear friend. And I, I asked Ben uh, his permission. I'm not sharing this uh, without his permission. But uh, and he's shared this uh, with many of you before. But Ben, uh, he struggles with uh, clinical depression. Uh, and, and sometimes in a, a crippling way. Uh, like, there will be seasons of, of weeks and sometimes even months where uh, he can't work, where, uh, like, it's hard to even get out of bed, where uh, it, the disease, it just, it, it overcomes him. And I have gotten to watch uh, and see firsthand, and I get to hear from Ben the way that Jocelyn loves Ben when Ben has absolutely nothing to offer in return. In those darkest moments, where it's not just a moment, it's a season, it's prolonged, and it's draining, and her resources are being depleted, but the Holy Spirit keeps coming in and reviving her, and she keeps loving laboriously. See, this, this is a love that labors, not just to serve Ben and her family, but to serve God. I see in Jocelyn the kind of love that Paul is, is observing in the Thessalonians. It's the love that leads to real life. The third ingredient is this hope that endures with deep conviction to wait for Jesus. It's a hope that endures. Hope's not simply a sentiment. It too is active. It endures. And it, he talks about this deep conviction, which doesn't mean like they know, but they're, they're, there's this certainty. They're so confident that Jesus is who he says he is, that they can endure. Whatever comes their way, they can endure. They can press forward to wait for Jesus, right? Now, there's two kinds of waiting in life. There's waiting because you're forced to wait, and there's waiting because you agree to wait. Uh, my daughter, being a toddler, we make her wait for things a lot, but she never agrees to wait. Uh, and so it's pretty, like, painful for us anytime we have to make her wait. Uh, Jen Hope Stein, she's a po uh, poet, but she says... Uh, this, uh, she calls it the now clock. The now clock is the clock of a toddler in which every number is replaced with the word now. And the hands of now are always pointed directly at the now or between two nows. Uh, this is what it's like when you're dealing with a toddler and they want something and they don't they have to wait for what you give them. But this is the waiting where you're forced to wait. This isn't what the Thessalonians are doing. They were waiting. They were agreeing to wait for Jesus. See, when you're forced to wait, then there is absolutely no joy. There's only frustration and anger and complaining until you get the object that you're waiting for. But when you agree to wait for something, then even the anticipation of what you're waiting for brings a joy in the moment that allows you to endure the moment joyfully knowing of what's to come. And this is what we see in the Thessalonians. I know this because Paul even talks about how they welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit, right? Severe suffering. Paul talking about severe suffering. Paul who was like stoned and whipped and beaten, like this guy knows suffering. He calls their suffering severe and he says they received it with joy, right? I have never suffered severely. Like 2021 was pretty rough, uh, but I didn't suffer severely. Maybe some of you did. I didn't. Uh, 2020 was rough. 2021 doesn't look like it's going to be a whole heck of a lot better. Uh, I think we all kind of hope that magically on New Year's Eve, 
everything would write itself. Turns out that didn't happen. Uh, and, and we're in the midst of this, and, and very often, even for Christians, we're waiting for Jesus, but we're like, because we're forced to wait, and it's a lot of frustration and anger and complaining. But the Thessalonians, they're dealing with this severe suffering with joy. Because they agree to wait, because they know that when Jesus comes, he's going to make everything right. It's going to be good. Is this the kind of hope that you have, a hope that endures? Is this the kind of hope that you, you want to have? Paul, he, he then observes the soil in which this kind, these kinds of ingredients are able to grow and flourish. It's, it's this richest soil of the kindness of our Savior. On our, our first year, uh, anniversary, Lindsay and I uh, decided to each sell a kidney and go back to craft uh, to celebrate. Uh, no, we did not sell a kidney, but it felt like it. Um, and the night before we went back, uh, we were hanging out with some friends in the city. It was a friend's birthday, and it was like friends of friends, and they all live in a very different tax bracket than we do, and we were talking about going to craft, and they're like, oh, yeah, craft is good. It was like they're Applebee's. Uh, and uh, this one girl, she starts talking about this, uh, this experience she had at, um, uh, what is it, Blue Hill at Stone Barn. Some of you might have heard of it. Maybe some of you have been there. Um, this one, you actually have to sell your firstborn child in order to go. Uh, but you go, and they do this, like, 30-course pairing, and they, like, take you around the farm as you do it. And uh, since then, I, I've heard of a, a few other people that have gone, and they uh, have all talked about one of the things that, that they focus on in, uh, at Stone Barns is, like, the, the cultivation of these ingredients. They're ingredients. Everything's, like, uh, grown right there on the premises and then plucked, like, hours before and cooked. But one of the, the key elements to having the best ingredients is having rich soil. You can't actually produce good ingredients without a, a soil that has the nutrients to fuel that. And for uh, the Thessalonians, the soil in which these ingredients was growing is the kindness of our Savior. You see that uh, the, the faith, love, and hope, they, they, he says that we're coming uh, in our Lord Jesus. And they were coming with the gospel, and they were looking to Jesus who rescues them from the coming wrath. It was the, the message, he says, that they received. It was the message that was ringing out to them. All of it was centered on the work of Jesus, the kindness expressed through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I was listening to a podcast earlier this week, and uh, it was a, a pastor that I, I hadn't even really heard of. His name was uh, Jared Wilson, and... Uh, he was sharing this, uh, this experience that he had. He was asked by uh, a publisher to contribute to a Bible study series that was organized uh, and edited by J.I. Packer. Some of you might know that name, many of you don't. J.I. Packer, he's kind of a big deal in pastor theological circles. And so it's a little intimidating for this pastor, who most people don't know, to be able to be a contributor to J.I. Packer's work. And so he, he wrote his Bible study, and he sent it out, and he was waiting to get the edits back from J.I. Packer. And he was, he was a little nervous to get them back. He didn't know, like, was the whole thing going to be bloodied and all of that. Uh, but this was, this was his reaction. He says, at first, I was relieved. It didn't look like someone had been slaughtered inside. There was red ink. Uh, there wasn't red ink everywhere. His role with this series is a very light editorial touch. He was changing a few things here and there and tightening things up. It was all very nice. But there wasn't anything that stood out to me as super profound or meaningful until I got to a particular passage. 
And I was commenting on Romans 2.4. I had written this reflecting on that verse. And then he, he reads what he had uh, written about that verse. He says, yet another wonderful affirmation of where the source of power to change is found. Paul reminds us in Romans 2.4 that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Not his law, not his berating, not his exasperation, but his kindness, period, end of thought. But Packer had added one thin vertical stroke to that period, and he turned it into an exclamation point, and he underlined kindness on there. Wilson, he goes on to say, brothers and sisters, I stared at it, and I began to weep. Meanwhile, I was driving around town, and I, too, was weeping at this point. Uh, I was once lonely and broken and hopeless and suicidal, and God's kindness reached out. I thought of all the kindness of God that led me to that moment, to that point, despite my sin, despite my failure, despite my weakness, despite all of my baggage and brokenness, despite my struggles and doubts, what I had at the end of my rope was God's kindness, exclamation point. I didn't need to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I needed to repent and believe the gospel. And I, I'm hearing this, and, and I too am weeping at this point, not because his story was so moving, because now at this point I can only think of God's kindness being expressed in my life. And he's been so, so kind to me. So kind. And he's been so, so kind to you. Do you know the kindness of your Savior? A kindness that would work for you. A kindness that would work perfectly on your behalf. In all the ways that you fall short and you mess up and you don't measure up, Jesus worked perfectly and he gave you the credit for his work. That kind of kindness. Do you know that Savior's kindness? Do you know the kindness of a, a Savior whose love for you will labor, who will deplete itself, he will deplete himself to the very breath of his lungs on the cross for you? Because he loves you. Do you know the kindness of a savior that will endure, not just endure the, the pain of the cross or the scorn of it or the shame or the ridicule that he received from others, but a, an endurance that would actually endure, endure the full wrath of God so that you could be rescued from it. Do you know that kindness? And maybe for you, you're saying, yes, I know that kindness. Like, I, I know it. Like, I know it theologically. I know it up in here in my mind. But it doesn't move me. It doesn't seem to have any sort of emotional, like, it, it, when I think about that kindness, it doesn't stir my affections in any sort of way. And, and here's the good news is that Paul doesn't leave us with this alone. He actually shows us how this rich soil was cultivated for the Thessalonians. This rich soil, he says, is cultivated relationally. Watch, watch what happens. He says, you know how we lived among you for your sake. So we here, this is Paul and Silas and Timothy, they came to Thessalonica and they lived among them for their sake. And says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And so you then became the model to all believers. And then the Lord's message rang out from you. You see the, the relationships going on here. And Paul and Titus, or sorry, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they came and they lived among them. They shared their lives with them. And in the, the next chapter, Paul actually says how they shared not only the gospel, they, their very lives with them. All right, and so there's this, this intimate relationship and they, they imitated it. And as they imitated Paul and Silas and Timothy, they became a model for others to imitate. 
And it is in the context of these relationships that that soil, that rich soil, where, uh, uh, that's just uh, so full of God's kindness, where the, the ingredients of faith that works and a love that labors and a hope that endures, where that can sprout up, not to the kind of like craft macaroni and cheese kind of ingredients, but and not even the craft ingredients. We're talking like the Blue Hill at Stone Farm ingredients. Those kind of ingredients grow up in a rich soil that is cultivated through relationships. And so here's, here's really the one question I want to ask you to consider for this coming year. Who will you imitate? Who do you know that exhibits the faith that works and the love that labors and the hope that endures? Do you know somebody like that? Imitate them. Like, go get to know them. Find them. Seek them out. There are, they are here in our midst. I know these people. Some of you might already know these people. If you don't know any of these people, find a way to get to know them. If you're not in a small group, find, get into a small group. Find somebody in your small group. If, if you're not connected on a serving team, connect on a serving team. Even if you, you don't care about serving, just do it so you can meet these people. Find these people that are loving as well so you can, you can be a part of their life. Ask them to lunch or you, you know, do whatever you can so that you can imitate them. And regardless of where you're at in your faith walk, even if you, you feel like you're a mature Christian, I encourage you, find someone to imitate. Every Tuesday morning, I go and I meet with a, a pastor. He's an older gentleman in Oyster Bay, and I do it because I see how he looks like Jesus, and I want to imitate that, all right? And so even as a pastor, I'm looking for that person to imitate. Who are you going to imitate? Find that person, all right? I don't want to just tell you, hey, go love better and do more work with your faith and endure with your hope. I, it doesn't work that way. But I, I do want to tell you, go find somebody who's doing these things and imitate them. Do what they do. Follow their, their practices. Listen to what they say. And as you imitate them, you will start to become a model for other people. And as Paul says, the gospel rang out. <laughs> Yeah, this, the message of Christ rang out like a bell, just this resounding sound. They weren't even trying. It rang out so much, Paul said, that he and Silas and Timothy didn't even need to talk about them. Because wherever they were going, people had already heard about the Thessalonians. Can you imagine if, if just us who are in this room and us who are, are online right now, if we found that person, those people to imitate. And we, we really did this for the next year. And we became a model how the gospel would ring out from this place. We call ourselves Beacon Church, and a beacon does exactly this. It lets the message of Jesus ring out from here. And, and I think it's going to start, for so many of us, if we make this decision, I'm going to find that person to imitate, and I'm going to sidle along them, and I'm going to ask them to lunch, and I'm going to get to know them. I'm going to do what they do as they follow Jesus. And we grow together to produce this, these rich ingredients of the Christian life, where a year from now we can all say, this, this is life. This is the gourmet version of the Christian life. I invite you to pray with me. Father, you have been so, so kind. And while we, uh, we deserve nothing, you still offer us the best. The best. The best life. God, and it's easy for us to become satisfied with, with lesser, with the status quo, God, but you have so much goodness waiting for us. And I pray that uh, over this next year, we will find people who we can imitate, 
that you'll bring into each of our lives those people that are following you well, that are exhibiting faith and love and hope in a, a profound and meaningful way that we can actually adapt our lives to, to theirs, do the same practices that they do, think like they think, God, and that we, through that experience, would come to a deeper and richer knowledge of your kindness and that your kindness would produce in us faith that works and a love that labors and a hope that endures in you. We love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name.